started this during my dissertation period and then I was like, oh no, I'm gonna I'm gonna change my entire dissertation. But <laughs> Nice. I I um I only included a little bit of uh D and G and then um later later on I will I'll probably go in full full bore. We'll see. Well I, I am a Holland booster. Um um very much so, to the point where I, I wrote him a very lovely email he answered. It was very nice of him. Um I'm a big fan of his interpretation. Um, uh, but I mean, it, one of the fun parts, there's a lot of you bring a lot to it and take away your own things. So that's the fun part. Um, real quick, uh, Jack or JK, uh, where do we leave off? God damn it. Then uh, we just read the Blonde Show thing. So I've got us, correct me if I'm wrong, I've got us out. We just finished the last paragraph at 3.30, which puts us at the top of 3.31. Okay, that's what I thought, too. Um, because we hadn't quite made it to how odd psychoanalytic adventure is, but we 100% did the what never ceases and never finishes happening in every becoming, the becoming another sex, the nature of death. We did make it through that. So um, we are at from one aspect to the other, there is not at all. That's where I have us starting. <laughs> Likewise. All right, cool. I'm going to do a ping then. We'll see uh, who joins us today. <sighs> With that, though, I will just kick us off, and I will have us running through um, what is going to be... I, I still think we're in that part where it's going to be a paragraph or two for the two hours. So, because this one and the next one together, I think there is so much to discuss and to make through that it's it's going to be very difficult. So... I wish all of us the biggest luck that there is. But with that, I'll kick off and say hello and welcome to the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus on our second run through, through the middle of 4.4. <coughs> we have spent last week almost entirely talking about death, the nature of death, where death plays in and how death may not be a drive, but instead a thing that is experienced now is experienced the time and all of those fun things. I am not going to revisit it because they continue right into new points almost immediately. So we are in the middle of 331 in my copy. I am sharing my PDF in the chat if you'd like to read alongside me. Um, before I get going, is there any notes, comments, questions uh, on these little parts that we're in? that you'd like to address before we dive in. And I, uh, to note, a recording bot is a recorder. I'm, I'm, I now have to tell people that because I had someone who thought it was someone just being funny. It's not. It's a, it's a recording bot that records. I know it sounds silly to announce, but yes, I have to announce it. So it's being recorded. Um, anything, anyone, please, uh, or I'll just dive in. All right. Does the recording bot have a name? No, recording bot is the recording bot's name. It's a shitty little tiny computer that I found on eBay. <sighs> From one aspect to the other, there is not at all a personal deepening, but something quite different. There is a return from the experience of death to the model of death in the cycle of the desiring machines. The cycle is closed. For a new departure, since this I is another, the experience of death must have given us exactly enough broadened experience in order to live and know that the desiring machines do not die, and that the subject, as an adjacent part, is always a one 
who conducts the experience, not an I who receives the model. For the model itself is not the I either, but the body without organs. And I does not rejoin the model without the model starting out again in the direction of another experience, always going from the model to the experience and starting out again, returning from the model to the experience, is what schizophrenizing death amounts to, the exercise of the desiring machines, which is their very secret, well understood by the terrifying authors. The machines tell us this, make us live it, feel it deeper than delirium and further than hallucination. Yes, the return to repulsion will condition other attractions, other functionings, the setting in motion of other working parts on the body without organs, the putting to work of other adjacent parts on the periphery that have as much a right to say one as we ourselves do. Quote, let him die in his leaping through unheard of and unnameable things. Other horrible workers will come. It will begin on the horizons where the others collapsed. The eternal return as experience and as the deterritorialized circuit of all the cycles of desire. There's so much in here to unpack. Um, God damn it, there's so much in here to unpack. Previous paragraph. God damn, I really don't want to revisit it. We spent so much time on it last week. The previous paragraph uh, has been leading up to us talking about death and how death plays its role and actually happens and plays within these things. It's not so much that death is an all-encompassing organism-wide event. Instead, these things happen at these tiny little moments, the, the breaks and flows inside of the desiring machines. The desiring machines themselves are intended to have these moments, this... This, la- this loss, this, this extinguish at the end uh, where it becomes death, this play as it's making its way through is not, though, however, about you dying, the I. And here, this paragraph gets into what I think is one of the more clearer parts, in my understanding, of how they view the subject and subjectivity, the ego, the I, the, the experiencer, the participant in life that you may believe you are or think you are. And that's a lot of this paragraph is sort of playing with that because it, it opens up from one aspect to the other. There's not at all a personal deepening, but something quite different. There's a return from the experience of death to the model of death in the cycle of the desiring machines. The personal deepening, as I read this, and I'd love anyone to give their thoughts, the comment here is not so much that you necessarily, uh, or I, Brooks, gain learnings of life through these experience and there is a personal deepening but instead the 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 thing that's happening is ultimately that I'm moving from the experience of death to the model of death this oscillation this vibration at the desiring machine level the cycle itself is closed but it's not so much that I get to experience it but instead these little tiny machines that ultimately make me up and do and this is where they start getting into their take on subjectivity is that a fair Read. Does anyone have thoughts on that? I'm going to put that out there because it's a, it's such a complex section, and even the first two sentences are this difficult. So I figured I'd I'd toss it out as a start. I, I can take a stab at that. I, I kind of wish we had Ken here for this because this is where they're. I mean, they just invoked Blanche Show, but I think this is getting into some of the deeper psychoanalytic stuff because usually when you bring up the eye in psychoanalysis, you're talking about the ego. Yes. Right? 
and, and that usually gets at not only the pre-conscious, but that's that's getting into consciousness, right? So there's a whole there's a whole discursive um, pretext that that's being evoked just by using the eye, um, and I think they realize that because the psychoanalytic backdrop there would be the creation of object relations, right? More more specifically, like the reality principle, right? So the the id says hungry, and the, the the ego has to direct that hunger to some object to help satisfy it, right? Because the the hunger isn't dependent on the object, but the ego has to try and like kind of negotiate reality with um with what the id wants. Here they're saying um, experience of death must always. Here we go. For a new departure, since this eye is another, experience of death must have given us exactly enough about experience, and the subject as an adjacent part is always a so-called one who conducts the experience, not an eye who receives the model. For the model itself is not the eye either, but the body without organs. And I does not rejoin the model without the model starting out again in the direction of another experience. So this is kind of difficult to parse, but I, it looks like they're trying to make a move connecting the eye with the body without organs. Because I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to work out based on that last paragraph without going too deep into it. There's the subject, I think, just in terms of the unconscious, which I think is this variable element. And then it looks like there's the subject with this point about the eye. And I think that's supposed to be tied more directly to the body without organs. I, so to me, I, I read that, I, I can't help but read it through the lens of um, Logic of Sense and his discussion on Kronos and Aeon, the, the nature of two types of time, where you have the one that is the experience and the other that is the model, experience being Kronos, model being Aeon, the infinitely divided future and past. The, the play it feels like he's making here is that we move from the thought of what a thing is. It is, it is not I who receives the model. Um, uh, that the subject as an adjacent part is always a one who conducts the experience, which is a, conducts is a very interesting phrasing there. Not an I who receives the model. For the model itself is not the I either, but the body without organs. The receipt of the model, the the play that they're making here, as I'm reading it, is that they have um, the movement from the the chronos, the actual experience, to the essentially the assessment of it, the recording, the how are things supposed to be interpretation meta level, which is through the BWO, the the eternal sort of um, constellation of our experiences as we see them and as we interpret them uh, through each other. That that back and forth that they say, they then talk about it is not I, I, I does not rejoin the model without the model starting out again in the direction of another experience. Again, the repulsion of the desiring machines talked about in uh, all of chapter one and parts of uh, two, this, this underlying thing that the desiring machines are constantly doing of connecting BWO right there. Oh my God, I want you repulsing it. Uh, paranoiac reaction for the desiring machines, but then the BWO is enabling us to go in that new direction. Uh, always going from model to experience and starting out again, 
returning from the model to the experience is what schizophrenizing death amounts to, the exercise of the desiring machines. This constant thing that is, uh, they refer to almost as birth and death, which is interesting, but it's less that they are die and more that they're ultimately repulsed because of the movement from the model, which is not the desiring machines back to experience, which is ultimately powered by desiring machines. Sorry if that was a weird ramble, but that's, it's a really dense, like five sentences and I'm trying to figure out how to sort of, uh, interpret them. So that's my take. I don't think it's far from yours, Jack. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, like, like I said, for me, the, the biggest challenge is that they're, they're evoking this eye because like, I read this, like when they're, they're doing the one eye thing, right? So Unfortunately, you need some level of the previous paragraph, right? Bonchot describes this twofold nature. Clearly, these two irreducible aspects of death, the one according to which the apparent subject never ceases to live and travels as a capital O-1. Quote, one never stops and never is done with dying. End quote. And this sounds to me like he's talking about just the assemblage. They're talking about the assemblage in general. Um... But then they write, on the other, according to which the same subject, which I would think is just the unconscious, right, fits as I, actually dies, which is to say it finally ceases to die, since it ends up dying in the reality of a last instant that fits as it in this way as an I, all the while undoing the intensity, carrying it back to the zero that envelops it. So in that way, right, the if this is supposed to explain the third synthesis, right, the distribution of intensities and the effects that go into territorialization and basically enable subjectivity, right? On one level, there, I guess this is like the 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 life principle, more or less, right? They're powering the one, and they're not. I guess they're perhaps like no matter. On the other hand they're returning to the BWO at like that absolute zero. And that seems to be more or less how they're explaining like subjectivity in the, the conjunct. Because what's really difficult, right, is like we usually, when we use I and the ego, right, we're thinking about a personal ego and because of the way they think of the unconscious, right? The eye is really strange here because it would have to be in relation to the, de the desiring machines at the molecular level. Is it possible to think of the, um, the uh, BWO as the, as the unconscious and that the, um, the model of the eye and the eye are, are like, you know, ego and the superego? That interchange and in this process, they come and go, and then but the that uh, the all all this process is going on, and it all comes back to the um, the BWO one, the the unconscious that is um, that is you know driving has contains all these um, desires of um, that powers this process, and it is a process of of becoming right of um, the eternal return that constantly. You know the um, the cycle of desire, right? 
Well, they have that paragraph a few pages ago, right, where they say like there's a. It's basically the one substance between the BWO and desired machines, right? And I think that all together is the unconscious, right? The the vitalism, the machinism, the BWO. I think that's what constitutes the unconscious because those are the those would be your um, conditions of experience, right? And so in that sense, where they write, um, and that subject has an adjacent part is always a so-called one who conducts the experience, not an I who receives the model. For the model itself is not the I either, but the body without organs. It, it sounds to me like there's a juxtaposing of the ego with the BWL. And I guess that's part of the challenge for me, is that that's a really fascinating move. And that definitely seems consistent, but that's that's also very weighty, right? Yeah, I wonder if you could think of it as a um, as a kind of like the unconscious as the ocean of experience uh, that um, when, every once in a while you have these um, tips of the iceberg, you know, sticking up, and that would be like the eye or the models of an eye that comes and goes in this ocean of um, unconscious experience. Wait. Because what we're talking about here, let's just, again, I'm trying to piece it together without bringing in too, too much else because it's, I'm, where I'm having trouble is, uh, okay, we have desiring machines. They connect, disconnect, record, all that fun shit. Um, they go through their process. Um, the disconnection moment or whatever that is, there's, a, there's an element of productive desire inside of desiring machines that is allowing them to continue to produce desire to connect at some point, the disconnection on body without organs slides between them. This, this is their version of the death's instinct. There is a produced element here that is anti-production. Uh, it is not a, um, um, uh, it's not the death instinct is in Thanatos as in uh, Freud, but instead, uh, anti-production itself, which sort of is a semi desexualizing of the desiring machine. And that, allows them to sort of be neutralized and this recording surface generated. The, the BWO is kind of out of disconnection and death uh, of that. This, this thing is made. The recordings are made with that disconnection, I guess I'm saying. So is that the, what they're equating here, the death <clears throat> and their explanation, are they talking about the moment of disconnection that leaves the recording behind that ex is that the experience of death that happens at the moment of desiring machines that it isn't so much the eye that that grows and changes the ego that does these things there is no ego instead it's the bwo that is recording it the the schizophrenized death that is happening billions of times with lots of desiring machines which ultimately enable secondary new connections to be formed and for us to continue sort of moving on this is the, as I take it, this makes sense to me because the line is the machines tell us this and make us live it, feel it deeper than delirium, further than hallucination. Yes, the return to repulsion will condition other attractions, other functioning, the setting in motion of other working parts on the BWO, the putting to work of other adjacent parts on the periphery to have as much a right to say one as we ourselves do. This feels to me as though it is the production of anti, of anti-production. Anti the creation of that, which ultimately is enabling the uh, large-scale, decentered subject as they're talking about here. 
uh, with the line that I love, um, which is, uh, uh, comes from, sorry, uh, Rimbaud, um, Rimbaud, Rimbaud, um, to just read the section. Uh, the poet makes himself a seer by a long, gigantic, rational derangement of the senses, all forms of love, suffering, and madness. He searches himself. He exhausts all poisons in himself and keeps only their quintessences. Unspeakable torture, where he needs all his faith, all his superhuman strength, where he becomes among all men the great patient, the great criminal, the one accursed, the supreme scholar. Because he reaches the unknown, he reaches the unknown, and when bewildered, he ends by losing his intelligence and his visions. He has seen them. Let him die as he leaps through unheard of and unnameable things. Other horrible workers will come. They will begin from the horizons where the other collapsed. The, the, the poem's about sort of um, the phrase standing on the shoulders of giants when it comes to the creative process that... Um, one poet will go as far as he can, and then someone else will continue the work. Just that nature, and like the large conglomeration of humanity. They're using it to refer to desiring machines as if each one of them were the horrible little workers that at some point will die, and another connection and another desiring machine ultimately be formed that produces desire again. And that this death is part of that sort of part and parcel of that process. Also, so the uh, the process of, uh, of of becoming right of becoming that is uh, yes that has these intensities and death is like the zero intensity in 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 between in between these uh, instances of intensity right I I think here specifically though they're talking about the the disconnection um um to to kind of scroll back um the the way that they refer to it, the experience of death is the most common of occurrences in the unconscious precisely because it occurs in life and for life in every passage of becoming in every intensity as passage or becoming. It is the very nature of every intensity to invest within itself the zero intensity starting from which it is produced in one moment as that which grows or diminishes according to an infinity of degrees. This lay that they're making here feels like they're moving the death drive from uh, playing within sort of the triad of the id, ego, superego um, as a sort of underlying drive and instead saying, well, actually every desiring machine, which is not singular, desiring machines are two partial objects connecting and that desiring machine produces. At some point, disconnection happens. That desiring machine dies, but in its place, another connection is able to be made. And if we talk about sort of the mass of experience and sensitivities and partial objects and uh, uh, response organs that you literally have as a human. We're talking about millions of these, and that's just like the organism that is you. Um, as such, every one of those connections, whether it's finger on keyboard, lips to microphone, ear to headphones, whatever it is, these are all shit examples, but kind of. Um, every one of those, as a disconnection happens, that can be used for something else. The death at any moment is of the tiny bits, but another connection is immediately able to happen. And so it's this, the nature of becoming in mass is kind of the aggregate reality of that. And that's where they start talking about the putting to work of other adjacent parts on the periphery that have as much right to say one as we ourselves do. Like, where is the edge of you? Where is the wasp and the orchid? Where's the edge of one in the beginning of the other? 
same could be said of you as an organism, where do you end and something else begins, that reality puts us in a place of being able to continually find those new connections. And so death is not only um, a sort of shifted up from what it is as Thanatos under the ego classic psychoanalytic model, but instead death and separation and the breaking of these desiring machines is literally how they work. Like that's, that's their working is their death. Also life, but like death is, is functioning the fits and starts, um, the breaks and flows as they phrase it. And that's in contradic- uh, distinction to uh, Freud's uh, principle of, uh, of death, which it, he it, makes a, yes. a point. It, it feels like it's very much a direct answer to that finally, because they've kind of been hinting at it, but this is like, no, death is happening. Schizophrenizing death is desiring machines, all of them in mass, dying, re- being reborn, new connections, all of that. Go for it, Jack. And I think I saw Ms. Mar- Mrs. Marksy as well, but Jack, go for it. Thank you. I think what we're finding is at some level, we do need that last paragraph, <laughs> typical D&G, right? Um, that's what I mean is I think they're in the, the, I think they're trying to trace between the disjunct and the conjunct, right? Which is where I think these becomings are being created. Because the thing they're trying to work out is how is an investment of death made, right? Um, it, or even a speculative, none of the above. That's not the full thing, um, but nevertheless, I think what they're trying to work out is like, if connections are happening between the flows and machines in the first synthesis, and we talked about the disjunction, how they're being put to function in the second synthesis um, with a body without organs, I think the thing here is how do they get their intensity? Because the BWO will enable attraction or miraculation and um, repulsion, right? And this, where they write, like, um, we have attempted to show in this respect how the relations of attraction and repulsion produce such states, sensations, and emotions, which imply a new energetic conversion and form the third kind of synthesis, the synthesis of conjunction. One might say the unconscious is a real subject, has scattered an apparent residual nomadic subject around the entire compass of the cycle, a subject that passes by of all the becomings, passes by way of all the becomings corresponding to the included disjunctions. But the last part of the desired machine, the adjacent part. I think where they go on to say, but in them and themselves, these intensive emotions are closest to the matter whose zero degree they invest in themselves. And I think that's part of the thing they're getting at is like at some level the unconscious is investing in itself, which I think is that point about the one, but that relies on the body without organs, which is the model of death, right? And that gives you that kind of absolute zero piece. So every every attraction, every repulsion, I think, I think as vitalistic get, as it is, um, has that piece of the BWO in it. I, I think we may get there. I don't think we're, we're at that point yet. Like we're, the, this paragraph is not quite at that point in, in how I'm reading it. And even the previous paragraph, the previous paragraph is just talking about ultimately, yes, death does happen. Here is where it happens. And then they get into their 
specifically what you're talking about, I think, in the pre- in the next paragraph where they talk about the song of life and death and how these things play. Um, it's uh, to to take from Holland the way he describes it. I really like, and it rings with me. And it's playing with here the nature of uh, specifically becoming, but how uh, an infant, for example, doesn't necessarily totalize. Uh, mom as a person. Instead, it experiences connections in very particular ways. Um, and they are sure in line, but we create sort of the thread that goes, oh, this is mom. But an infant experiences, as Holland puts it, the good breast and the bad breast. Um, good breast is going into my mouth and feeding me. Bad breath, breast is being taken away. It makes me sad, which is, that's an infant. I have a, I have a six month, six week old. That's what it is. Um, but the infant isn't just like, oh, well, that's both are mom and I'm having to integrate them necessarily. Uh, the process of the integration of those is, is, is what happens on the BWO. And that's, that's, I think, what they're talking about here is that they have these essences of the death instinct where we have consistent disconnections and the new machines are able to be formed. And instead of saying that we have one overall overarching drive or one overall way that like thread through everything, they're breaking it down to the point where actually no life and death happen at this schizophrenized molecular level. And as such, the objects themselves come and go. They're all a process of becoming as we, the, the, the thread, the ego, the thread that we weave through them and claim and fall back on the BWO is ultimately sort of what does that. Like this, this is how I'm reading specifically this paragraph, but that's my grasp of it specifically here. Yeah, I, I guess I'm taking it as like every intensity of a flow so as to produce a becoming would re- rely on kind of that vitalistic thing we associate with Eros, but would also rely on the BWO's investment which is where you get that death instinct. So the intensity of any becoming in a flow would rely on those two things. Um, Ms. Marxy uh, had a point, very fair. Uh, this to me is their Nietzschean Marxism. Late Marx said something like, communism is the movement of absolute becoming, and it's obvious that becoming involves its own abolition. Nietzsche's hammer is important here. Nietzsche's entire concept around death, that you, it, life and death go hand in hand, and you know all of that, uh, 100%. Uh, and Mr. Speaker, this is where it's like, we're going to spend a while on one paragraph or two. It's, it's brutal. Um, Taryn writes in difference in repetition, he introduced the two deaths. The second more profound one, one dies refers to the desire of larval selves to break free, uh, or DM to make new connections, desire machines. It is used to introduce the eternal return in difference and repetition. Death bookends identity on both sides. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I mean, it, it's accurate. It's hundred percent accurate. I think, um, I'm trying to figure out how to word that here. It does feel like that though. That's fair. And it's hard for me not to bring in logic of sense, which talks about those two deaths as well, uh, from a very different perspective. Um, the death of the soldier that can never come is the section I'm thinking of where it's, um, the, in the moment, one can never die uh, because it never actually appears inside of any, any singular snapshot. There's no dying. There's either death or not. It's a hilarious way to sort of talk about how time works and paradoxes work. 
uh, you know, Deleuze with his sense of humor that's wonderfully dark, I guess. But it, it feels like a lot of that same stuff as well. Let's see if I can find that passage. Please, uh, Jack, or anyone else, um, Mr. Speaker, if you want as well, anyone, uh, jump in. Um, or I can move to the next paragraph as well. I don't mind doing that either. I, I guess like you say, what of death becoming? That's that's kind of what I'm getting at, is every becoming. So like, how do you get a becoming is kind of the question, right? And that's answered through the conjunct. And that's through the intensity is that um, that attraction and repulsion bring into the flows and the desired machines by virtue of the zones, right? Because when they go on in the paragraph we just read to say, um, the machines tell us, yes, the return to, here we go. The machines tell us this and make us live it, feel it, deeper than delirium and further than hallucination. Yes, the return to repulsion will condition other attractions, other functionings, the setting in motion of other part, working parts in the body without organs, the putting to work of other adjacent parts on the periphery that have as much as that have as much a right to say one as we ourselves do. So it says, to me, that's like they're saying, right? With the schizophrenization of death, I would think that that's getting at like a, an attractive aspect, uh, literally attraction, like pulling toward the VWO. Um, that's going to basically provide a death in the assemblage. I, I guess is the easy way to say that, to put the death into the, the intensity of the becoming. And in doing that, it's also going to enable new repulsions, right? So it's changing the functionalities of the flows. And in doing that, it's producing new becomings, I think is the shorthand of it. And so in doing that, right, like, this is what's so weird about it is I guess I'm looking at like there's that usual way of taking the ego as kind of maybe doing some of this, right? And the juxtaposition of that with how the BWO does that maybe suggests that the, when we use the ego that way, it's the ego receiving the model of the BWO. That's, I mean, it's, it's definitely an interesting puzzle to work through. Well, and, and again, I think the, 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 the thing underlying this that he's trying to get through and he, and, and Guattari writes about it as well is that last line, the, the Rimbaud line from his letters that talks about the, the poet who goes and creates and then dies. And then someone on that position, as far as he was able to push starts again, this, this to me stands in direct opposition of this sort of traditional uh, ego-based death instinct and conception of, of death where I go as far as I can and then, oh, I die and then I'm stopped. That's been fun. Bye. Kind of a ending of it all. Instead, this, the, the, again, to go with the, the beauty of becoming and death within it, the, the nature of becoming is that you never are a thing as such. You can't because of death, because all of those connections that make up that thing ultimately begin dying, breaking down, they snap and new connections have to be formed. The, the perverse attraction and demand, uh, the neurotic who sits there and screams that they have to still get back to these things. Oh no, I must have them. And uh, uh, the fetishists who, who, who endow ordinary objects 
with charges or values as, as Holland talks about. Um, these things are ultimately done outside of the normal ego. These things are happening at the level of desiring machines underneath it all. Ultimately they're going to get, and they are going to get to more of the BWO stuff. I think you're talking about Jack, but this is just them saying, no, no, even drives like death drive. Isn't this overt like top line drive that happens at the level of I, this is all them breaking down saying it's this, even this happens. Did you think we were fucking around when we said desiring machines breaking where is them working? We didn't, we weren't fucking around. This is what we mean. Now it's time for us to sort of go through that. Every desiring machine dies. That's how new things can happen. New connections. This is how becoming works. And now let's continue into our break of the psychoanalytic venture venture. I'm going to force us to the next paragraph in a few seconds, because now they're going to start again. We're in the pro- the positive task. Their goal here is to take apart the genuinely destructive version of what the psychoanalytic venture is and put something in its place that embraces these realities. And that's what they're about to get into as I read it. And I think it's, I think we move to the next paragraph unless anyone has a thing here. Cause we could, I think we could spend forever going back and forth, but I think the next two paragraphs are going to help uh, put this in line. How odd this psychoanalytic venture is. Psychoanalysis ought to be a song of life, or else be worth nothing at all. It ought, practically, to teach us to sing life, and see how the most defeated, sad song of death emanates from it, Iopopia. From the start, and because of his stumbered dualism of the drives, Freud never stopped trying to limit the discovery of a subjective or vital essence of desire as libido. But when the dualism passed into a death instinct against Eros, this was no longer a simple limitation. It was a liquidation of the libido. Reich did not go wrong here, and was perhaps the only one to maintain that the product of analysis should be a free and joyous person, a carrier of the life flows, capable of carrying them all the way into the desert and decoding them, even if this idea necessarily took on the appearance of a crazy idea, given what had become of analysis. He demonstrated that Freud, no less than Jung and Adler, had repudiated the sexual position. The fixing of the death instinct, in fact, deprives sexuality of its generative role on at least one essential point, which is the genesis of anxiety, since this genesis becomes the autonomous cause of sexual repression instead of its result. It follows that sexuality as desire no longer animates a social critique of civilization, but that civilization, on the contrary, finds itself sanctified as the sole agency capable of opposing the death desire. And how does it do this? By, in principle, turning death against death, by making this turn-back death into a force of desire, by putting it in the service of a pseudo-life through an entire culture of guilt-feeling. And this is repression. So it begins. Uh, Does anyone want to take a crack at this paragraph or ask questions on it or dive in? Please, I will leave it awkwardly open with silence until someone does. Good to have you here, Mr. Speaker. Um, I hope it is good stuff. This is us stumbling our way through everything. We'll see. And Jane Claire, you're in the wrong chat. That is logic of sense. You're posting anti-Oedipus stuff in. Um, I guess I can 
take a snap at kicking off. I mean, the, the first first thing that sticks out to me is that like it looks like there's in Freud there's an exclusive disjunction between uh, libido and um, between eros and thanatos, right? And that desexualizes libido, and that's the thing that they're arguing against, right? Is that there's no inconsistency between the two. Say that one more time for me, Jack. <clears throat> uh, there's no inconsistency. So just like with the, the conjunct, there's that mutual investment of um, like that more of a vastus um, aspect, but also the death through the BWO into the flows for the intensity. And doing that right, there's not a separation between the two drives um, in, like, in a more exclusive, disjunctive manner. So by doing that right, that seems to give D&G the ability to say like, um, no, Freud, like there's not a sublimation of um, of sexuality and libidinal drive through Thanatos, right? Especially where they start walking out more of the social. Like, it sounds like there's a critique of even like how a superego would play into this. Civilization, on the contrary, finds itself sanctified as the sole agency capable of opposing the death drive, right? The death desire. So at that point, it would be like, arguing that you need the superego to overcome this problem. I think. I, I think that's their critique, though. That's the that's their yeah. critique of Freud and saying, um, if we have this underlying, let's say in silly land, Freud land, that we have this drive to death and all of that, we have to constantly be fighting against it. And and what happens... Um, one, what happens is society then comes out and basically utilizes repression. Uh, they basically turn death against death by making this turned back death, uh, again, the, the way repression operates, into a force of desire. The challenge that happens with desiring machines is they don't think. They don't. They're connecting. That's how it goes. There is some level at the conglomerated emergent thing that is the organism of you that uh, has some semblance of subjectivity or ego. And when you see in the rest of the society and you're socially conditioned that, well, you can't have this desire, you can't do this thing, don't do this, this is terrible, sit in a psychoanalyst, psychoanalyst couch and learn how you need to be triangulated and you should what a fuck your mom, you don't, what's wrong with you kind of mentality. You don't actually have the ability to fix that. That is like saying, uh, to a mayor of a town that they need to make sure traffic flows better. Like, where do you even begin? You can't start that. There's, there's, there's so many fucking cars and roads and things people are doing in order to do it. You have to basically create a weird campaign of guilt that stops people from doing certain things in traffic. This is actually how you govern it. But people at the core can't control the desiring machines, they can't control the death. They can't do these things. And so it causes this mass anxiety. And this is the goal, ultimately, of psychoanalysis, even though they don't just act like it. This is, I think, their argument, that we are ultimately made anxious by trying to hold back a death desire that doesn't exist by turning death against death. And that's that last line, by putting it into the service of a pseudo-life, through a culture of guilt feeling. That this idea of 
the sexual position, the fixing of the death instinct, in fact, deprives sexuality of its generative role on at least one point, which is the genesis of anxiety, since this genesis becomes the cause of sexual repression instead of its result. It's an amazing line here that follows through everything they've been talking about to this point about connection and disconnection. And again, they're going to be talking about death again in another way. But this reality of psychoanalysis is not this boisterous, happy person at the end. It is a neurotic. It is someone filled with anxiety, someone who has to try to, oh God, I have these thoughts. I have, what about these things that I do? Oh God, I've got to stop them. But you can't. The desiring machines don't give a shit about you. I don't give a fuck. They don't fucking care about you. Like you can repress and push these things down through ultimately the syllogisms and through some generalized repression, which does not serve us in the end, uh, uh, is, is the setup. Um, that's, that's how I would explain this paragraph. Um, it's, it's a, a large mass government putting out rules about how we need to treat each other nicely and do X, Y, or Z, or a group of people saying, here's how you need to treat everyone around you nicely. But like, does it work? We're not, not really. It, it makes neurotic citizens. And this would be the same case. This produces neurotic interactions uh, within the unconscious. Again, it's all of this is produced and this is here because of a misunderstanding about how ultimately we are produced and how desiring machines work and death operates within that. Sorry to make that sound like I'm being really declarative. This is how I understand this section, and I really like my interpretation, but it doesn't have to be the right one at all. Like, there's a lot of ways to read this. I've read some others that are convincing. I just, to me, this one, um, to me, is crisp, but I'm very open. So please, anyone else? Well, that, that's sort of where I'm thinking it's a critique of the superegon sublimation, because... So, like, the point of the superego is to basically keep the ego in check, right? So it's a way of conditioning how object relations um, or a kind of reality would be constituted, right? And in doing that, the, the point of the death instinct in psychoanalysis is D&G are, are approaching it, right, is that death would be a way of ending desire, um, and so Thanatos would be a way of basically sublimating eros, desexualizing eros. And then you kind of it's actually interesting. I think the implication is that you would let the symbolic take over from there, right? Because um, I think that's more or less when they say through an entire culture of guilt feeling, that's kind of what they're getting at is uh, more or less something along that lines, right? Um, and so that's really interesting because in doing that, then the implication, as I'm thinking about it, would be that... Um, the superego, the, the symbolic, perhaps more appropriately to structural psychoanalysis, it's basically trying to turn the BWO against itself. And that gets into a whole interesting, um, very pregnant idea. Well, I would, I would even say you're talking about uh, the socius being turned against the BWO, because the, the part that I think is interesting is their use of the word guilt. Because, yeah. uh, and they've used guilt a bunch uh, earlier yeah. when they were describing specifically money and debt. Um, guilt means you owe, like you have guilt because you feel you owe something to someone. You've done wrong by them. You could make it right that there is a debt that you owe. This is, this is what guilt is. Guilt doesn't just exist as a thing. It's, it's a social relation. I feel guilty. I could be doing more. I ought to be doing more. I have a debt to people. 
debt, um, let's say through capital, uh, which would be the socius, may actually suddenly make it so our entire reality around exploitation and money has shifted from no longer being just purely exchange, but because it capital takes the role that it does, it actually becomes symbolic of our debt and our guilt. And as such, if there's a way you want to talk about neuroticizing an entire population, you make all of them very aware of what their guilt is all the fucking time. Yeah, guilt, guilt is very productive. If you haven't read uh, Debt, uh, which is a wonderful book, um, um, I, would, I would suggest it. Terrifying. Good book, though. And uh, yeah, you're right. That's definitely a mainstay of the socios, right? Is that the way guilt functions in terms, especially its disjunction and its um, its conjunction, right? Guilt's a mainstay of that. Um, it's it's really fascinating to think about that, though, because like a major implication there, as I'm thinking about it, would be it's it's a problem of basically trying to turn the body without organs against itself. Well, and it's, but this is why they go right at psychoanalysis here because, um, and why the book's called anti-Oedipus. I mean, there's a lot of reasons, um, but one big one is Oedipus is about inducing guilt. The, the Oedipal complex properly done as described is that I should feel proper guilt as situated in social relations with my father, whom I want to kill and guilt against kind of a society and my father again, uh, the law for wanting to fuck my mom. Those things are supposed to be de facto guilt that you as a human are meant to take according to psychoanalysis. And if you don't have that proper triangulation of guilt and debt, you're fucked. So you go through the process of that. Suddenly we're in a really weird place where it's, we have this guilt, but the guilt's actually not necessarily the, the, how do they say, um, the, the phrasing that they have here, I really love, um, the, wait, one second, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. Um, it's the, the line about anxiety. Where the fuck is it? Oh, there it oh, is. Um, oh, which is the genesis of anxiety. The genesis of anxiety, since this genesis becomes the autonomous cause of sexual repression instead of its result. The, the traditional sort of play uh, in psychoanalysis is that um, anxiety actually causes sexual repression. Uh, the, 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 the withholding of the libido, the desexualization of passions, uh, the, the hyper-repetition habitual uh, activity, it is not the result of sexual repression. For sexual repression does not then cause anxiety, which is a little bit more the traditional psychoanalytic, oh, it's, if you're properly repressed, you will have some anxiety. It's no, 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 no. The, the anxiety from the guilt causes the sexual repression. And that is, again, because underneath it all, these poor desiring machines are just trying to live with your stupid neurotic fucking brain doing what it's doing inside of the stupid society, trying to make connections and doing its thing. But you're sitting there creating anti-production here and fucking with them and repression here and they're wanting to connect and so anxiety's growing because of this weird fucked up sexual repression. I think that's a, a good point there because that's part of what the sublimation would do, right? It's 
I mean, at some level, right, the tension release thing, it's all about where the desire goes or otherwise where the desexualized desire goes, I guess, is the point in this one, right? And at some level, that gets at the ego. And at some level, that gets at the superego, right? And, like, the mainstay of this critique for me is, like, it, it seems that they're implying at some level that the imaginary is kind of a, perhaps a kind of reflection of what the body without organs is doing. And then at a larger level, the symbolic is basically a desexualization of what the, mo the molecular is doing. And in doing that right, some really interesting things happen, like you're saying with, with desexualization, because the, the point there, I mean, it strikes to me at some level that it strikes the idea of like looking for the self. Um, it also strikes the idea that we can change things at this cultural level in such a way that we're basically quelling desire, right? There's something really interesting there that's, that's probably going to take some pondering to pull out. Uh, but there's something there in terms of, like, we talk about culture battles in the U.S. a lot. I think part of the thing we can draw from D&G here is, like, this talk about culture battles. Um, all it does is kind of stymie. What, what its function is at some level is a stymieing of desire. So there's not necessarily a need to re resolve a culture battle so much as there is um, a serious problem about the, the repression that Roots, I think, is mentioning, right? That the kind of sublimation there would actually be creating a whole, uh, would be part and parcel to a kind of repression. It's it's a fascinating sort of setup setup and subject because when you talk about if you watch reactionary media just in general, um, the push is towards guilt, and that's everything uh, that they're driving at which is really a fun lens to be able to sort of look at once you've sort of really grasped how guilt plays and how sexual repression is um, um, the, the cause of the anxiety and how these things sort of then run into each other. Uh, the anti-abortion, it's, it's not about anything. I don't even know if it's about controlling women's bodies. It's about instilling guilt so that way people are properly... Uh, you know, workerized and, and subjectivized within society. Um, the same as there's two genders as a thing. It's about feeling guilt for like whatever, just a, a generalized guilt because none of us are anything. Um, as, as this sort of plays, the capitalist reactionary complex absolutely adores these things. Capitalist institutions adore debt. They want it. They want it all the fucking time because it's ultimately how they're able to function sort of at a large scale. But this guilt-inducing reality uh, is, is the underlying problem with the society we're in. It's one of the reasons also I, I tend to uh, sort of two-second rant. It's why I don't call a lot of people left. I stopped using the term because they're reactionaries. Their life is about making other people feel guilt as well and repressing them in their own ways. And then they say things like, I don't mind if I'm repressing the right things. Like, cool, this is, this is healthy. Um, so it's a, it's a weird society we live in of guilt and people driving guilt. Um, and that's, that's kind of it. That use of like a cultural value, right? 
that that's kind of the thing I'm getting at is there's something really interesting there they're putting their finger on that that we definitely notice, but like their explanation of how it works is is is, is quite poignant. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just that example. No, no, right you're there, good. That, it's, that, it's... That's kind of what I'm trying to put my finger on. It's like that point of sublimation where, and that's the weird thing about it, right? Is that like in the name of a value, one is finds themselves willing to to un, you know, it, it, it's tough because we're talking about the unconscious, but to accept in a, um, at some level uh, a condition of experience. Um, that is repressive, right? As though it were desired, um, or as though the desire has lost its productivity. Well, uh, and that's that's it's where it's um, my money is. I don't know if everyone here has seen Tucker Carlson's new documentary trailer about what happened to masculinity. You should. It's amazing. It's one of the most homoerotic things I've ever seen. Now. The reason it is fascinating is because it is intended to tell a hyper-masculinist, straight, cis, white male view of what happened to masculinity with a whole bunch of shirtless lumberjacks doing sit-ups and, I'm not joking, tanning his testicles naked. Um, it's, and they're all these like super hunky, well-built dudes, and they're like shirtless or flat naked. It's really strange. And the intention of this is so deep when you start understanding how these things are connecting with desiring machines. Because again, this isn't about the person viewing. This isn't about the person making it. That's Freudian ego-based way. Instead, break a lot of these things down and talk about the desiring machines for everyone who sees this and goes, well, that's, that's hot. Kind of is, sort of, in some way to literally everybody. Like they're pretty attractive, hunky dudes. And then suddenly realize that all of those connections that we're just trying to be made are being beat up by anti-production, deeply repressed, and then sublimated, and then ultimately turn into the guilt, hate, weird, fear complex that comes out the other side. It isn't so much the subject. It isn't the ego sitting there going, well, I don't know if I'm supposed to be doing this, and the id screaming, yes, 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 do anal sex with those men, and the superego saying, no, you can't, this triad again. It's all the desiring machines. There's some that a lot of them that don't even care as you're, as you're watching, but that guilt that is produced is the underlying intended product because that is what causes ultimately repression, which causes the sexual, uh, uh, how to, how to phrase it. Um, the sexual repression that ultimately then causes the anxiety that then feeds back into itself and causes a more paranoiac neurotic subject which kind of becomes a positive feedback loop so it's amazing um also totally see this i can't wait for more people to watch the tucker carlson thing it's hilarious uh, i someone thought it was a joke when i sent it to him and it seems like a parody um I mean, that shit that shit happens on the left too the pseudo left um re reactionary guilt politics is america right now it's how capital works uh it's important to know um, let's continue to the next paragraph though. <clears throat> now, unless anyone has questions or comments on this. Just that I, I think you said an expectation for that's movie night has to be that documentary, right? I, I, I dude, seriously. Um, 
I know. <laughs> it's I, I, real. I'm... Yeah, it's something else. Um, I'm going to post it in. Uh, I mean, it's it's honest to God. It's it's. I'm posting it in Anti Oedipus right now. How, how far we've come thing. as a society. We used to have to have to you know fight over Starbucks cups, and now we're fighting over men doing pushing push-ups in, in a lovely baseball field and tanning their scrotums. And tanning their scrotums. And it's full-on, like, it's it's straight erotic. It's even filmed erotically. It's kind of, um, again, desiring machines are a wonderfully interesting little fascinating thing. And again, the death of them and how they play into it, and how the death principle plays into it and all these things, it's deeply important to understanding ultimately how subjectivity is produced and then how we can positively do something with that. Because this is also not, again, the, the destructive task that was before to break down representations. We ain't got to the positive task really not yet. So I'll continue. There is no need to tell all over how psychoanalysis culminates in a theory of culture that takes up again, the age old task of the ascetic ideal. Nirvana, the cultural extract, judging life, belittling life, measuring life against death, and only retaining from life what the death of death wants, very much to leave us with, a sublime resignation. As Reich says, when psychoanalysis began to speak of Eros, the whole world breathed a sigh of relief. One knew what this meant, and that everything was going to unfold within a mortified life, since... Thanatos was now the partner of Eros, for worse, but also for better. Psychoanalysis becomes the training ground of a new kind of priest, the director of bad conscience. Bad conscience has made us sick, but that is what will cure us. Freud did not hide what was really at issue with the introduction of the death instinct. It is not a question of any fact whatever, but merely of a principle, a question of principle. The death instinct is pure silence, pure transcendence, not givable and not given in experience. This very point is remarkable. It is because death, according to Freud, has neither a model nor an experience that he makes of it a transcendent principle. So that the psychoanalysts who refused the death instinct did for for the same reason as those who accepted it. Some said there was no death instinct since... There was no model or experience in the unconscious. Others, there was a death instinct precisely because there was no model or experience. We say, to the contrary, that there is no death instinct because there is both the model and the experience of death in the unconscious. Death, then, is a part of the desiring machine, a part that must itself be judged, evaluated in the functioning of the machine and the system of its energetic conversions, and not as an abstract principle. Once in a while, they just write a very clear paragraph. Like there's like 12 of them in this book. I promise. Um, even if you don't know Freud, even if, and I don't have a huge grasp of it. I happen to have a bunch of Reich books because I really got into them. That none of that even matters. Like all of that, that the death instinct as a conception they're just like, no, 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 it, there is no death instinct because actually in lived experience of the unconscious, in that experience, there is both the model of death 
and the experience of death. That death then is a part of the desiring machine, a part that must be judged, evaluated in the functioning of the machine and the system of its energetic conversions and not as a principle. This goes back to the very beginning of the book and one of the things a lot of people very much get wrong that desiring machines, uh, two pieces go together. Oh, look, a desiring machine's made, then they break. Okay, and the moment of break is where the desiring machine stops. No, 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 no. That's where the desiring machine dies. And that is part of the desiring machine. We need to do away with the idea that the ceasing to exist or the break is no more, which we do now. If I have a pipes to the house where water's flowing through them, and then I take all the pipes away, I, you go, well, you don't have any pipes anymore. The, there's, there's no more pipes. There's a non-existence. So we, we assume an absence. And their argument here is the opposite, that, that death, the breaking, the stopping of the flow, all of that is part of it. That it is not some transcendent, non-model, non-thing that is whatever. Uh, it's not an abstract. That it is part of the machine and that the death of the machine itself needs to be judged and needs to be evaluated as part of the functioning. In the same way that you, you might say uh, cattle or cows or chickens, or if you're growing algae or fish, the death matters and is part of the ecosystem of that ecosystem. What eats it when it's done? How does that work? Death is a part of the machine of the ecosystem in the same way every desiring machine has death as part of it as well. It is not to be dis, you know, dismissed. The breaking and death of the desiring machine is the functioning of the desiring machine. They said that early on many times, but here they're being deeply serious that it is not some abstract principle. I think that's actually a pretty crisp interpretation of that section of this paragraph. I'm open, though. Come at me. Let's fight. All right. Cool. Easy enough. I guess everyone agrees. I will take that. Um, again, sometimes they have a very crisp, nice little paragraph. It doesn't happen a lot, but... Um, that one I can confidently say I, I kind of understand a little bit. Um, so the next one, which is not as crisp. Let's have fun. If Freud needs death as a principle, this is by virtue of the requirements of the dualism that maintains a qualitative opposition between the drives. You will not escape the conflict. Once the dualism of the sexual drives and the ego drives has only a, sorry, I'll say that one more time. It's an awkward sentence. Once the dualism of the sexual drives and the ego drives has only a topological scope, the qualitative or dynamic dualism passes between Eros and Theratos. But the same enterprise is continued and reinforced, eliminating the machinic element of desire, the desiring machines. It is a matter of eliminating the libido insofar as it implies the impossibility of energetic conversions in the machine, libido numen voluptus. It is a matter of imposing the idea of an energetic duality, rendering the machinic transformations impossible, with everything obliged to pass by way of an indifferent neutral energy, that energy emanating from Oedipus incapable of being added to either of the two irreducible forms, neutralizing mortifying life. The purpose of the topological and dynamic dualities is to thrust aside the point of view of functional multiplicity that alone is economic. 
Zondi situates the problem clearly. Why two kinds of drives disqualified as molar, functioning mysteriously, which is to say oedipally, rather than in genes of drives, eight molecular genes, for example, functioning mechanically? Generally, this is just a critique of death drives and life, all of that again. But there's stuff in here that's worth going through, just to read the base uh, footnote. On the impossibility of a media... Oh, fuck, so many of these words. Like, I literally just said they write clear paragraphs, and then they write one of these. On the impossibility of immediate qualitative conversions and the necessity for going by way of neutral energy, see Sigmund Freud, The Ego and the Id, uh, translated by Jean, Jean uh, Rivier. This impossibility, this necessity is no longer understandable, it seems to us, if one agrees with Jean Laplanche that the death drive has no energy of its own. Uh, therefore, the death drive could not enter into a veritable dualism or would have to be confused with the neutral energy itself, which Freud denies. Uh, hey, the death drive doesn't have any energy. Well, then how the fuck is it a dualism? Well, it doesn't exist, but it's a duality and I don't know in magic is kind of the comment there at the bottom. Please, anyone wants to dive in, this is like, oh, that opening sentence, I don't even think I could read a second time. Just beating up Freud, that's all this is. Am I wrong that it's just beating up Freud? Jack, Jack, anyone, please, someone else? This is a tough, this is a nightmare paragraph because you have to know so much about Freud and I don't, like some of these things ring with me, but the rest of it is like Jesus Christ. This one's, this one's not too bad on the Freud, because I think, I mean, I think you kind of got it with with your take on the foot now, right? Is like, so right there, right? Once the dualism of the sexual drives and the ego drives has only a topological scope, qualitative or dynamic dualism passes between Eros and Thanatos. But the same enterprise is continued and reinforced, eliminating the machinic element of desire desire machines. It was a matter of eliminating libido insofar as it implies the possibility of energetic conversions in the machine. Libido, Newman, Voluptus, right? So I think like the point they're basically making is like, right, so what is this, so this criticism of Freud, why does it matter to criticize Freud on this, right? The, the way that the Freudian piece here functions at a larger level, right? Is that it would basically it would basically replace the process of uh, desiring production, right? The three phases we've been going over, the three syntheses, the conditions of experience, as they say earlier on, right? It would basically replace that entire aspect of the unconscious with just a conflict. And to me, this one kind of reminds me of Marx a little bit there, but it basically replaced all that with a basic conflict between two drives, right? And at that level, there's no conversion. So you lose out on the process of production basically altogether. You just kind of have things um, stuck in themselves, right? The purpose of the topological and dynamic dualities is to thrust aside the point of view of functional multiplicity that alone is economic. So the way that all the desired machines, whatever they're doing in these processes of uh, production, right, that's basically um, stymied, right? It's basically quelled 
or at least it's attempted to be quelled. Um, I think Ash, a good amount is going to come through as they, again, this last paragraph wasn't, was a nightmare. Um, they're about to kind of do the thing they do where they say a whole bunch of really complicated individual things. And then, Hey, I've got a paragraph here where I actually give you the thread so you can follow me. It's a good thing. I do that after I've made you read the other parts. Uh, let's see what we can do through this. If one looks in this direction for the ultimate reason why Freud erects a transcendent death instinct as a principle, the reason will be found in Freud's practice itself. For if the principle has nothing to do with the facts, it has a lot to do with the psychoanalyst's conception of psychoanalytic practice, the conception the psychoanalyst wishes to impose. Freud made the most profound discovery of the abstract subjective essence of desire, libido, but since he re-alienated this essence, reinvesting it in a subjective system of representation of the ego. And since he recoded this essence on the residual territory of Oedipus and under the despotic signifier of castration, he could no longer conceive the essence of life except in a form turned back against itself, in the form of death itself. And this neutralization, this turning against life, is also the last way in which a depressive, exhausted libido can go on surviving and dream that it is surviving. Quote, the ascetic libido, sorry, the ascetic ideal is an artifice for the preservation of life. Even when he wounds himself, this master of destruction of self-destructing, the very wound itself compels him to live, end quote. It is Oedipus, the marshy earth, that gives off a powerful odor of decay and death. It is castration, the pious, ascetic wound, the signifier that makes of this death a conservatory for the Oedipal life. Desire is in itself not a desire to love, but a force to love, a virtue that gives and produces, that engineers. For how could what is in life still desire life? Who would want to call that a desire? But desire must turn back against itself in the name of a horrible Ananke, the Ananke of the weak and oppressed, a contagious, neurotic Ananke. Desire must produce its shadow or its monkey and find a strange artificial force for vegetating in the void at the heart of its own lack. For better days to come, it must. But who talks in this way? What abjectness become a desire to be loved or worse, a sniveling desire to have been loved, a desire that is reborn of its own frustration? No, daddy mommy didn't love me enough. Sick desire stretches out on the couch, an artificial swamp, a little earth, a little mother. Look at you, stumbling and staggering with no use in your legs, and it's nothing but you wanting to be loved which does it, a maudlin crying to be loved, which makes your knees go all ricky. Just as there are two stomachs for the ruminant, there must also exist two abortions, two castrations for sick desire. Once in the family, in the familial scene with the knitting mother, Another time in an aseptic clinic in the psychoanalytic scene with specialist artists who know how to handle the death instinct and bring off castration, bring off frustration. A great paragraph. Also, 99% sure at the end there, they, they are just polite. I don't know why they're polite there. I think it's a translation thing. A jerking off castration, make, or make, right? That's what that is? Bring off? That's what that phrase means? Am I wrong here? No? I'm going to find the original fucking text again. Oh, like a double entendre? Yeah. 
Well, I mean, me, bring yeah. off is like a phrase from the set. That's a phrase from the seventies and sixties. That's not a new thing. I'm not making that up. Is this like when we had that conversation about woodworking? Um, no. Please, if anyone wants to start, Jack, if you want to dive in, go for it. I'm very slow All to read right. French, so it takes me time to find stuff. Sure, I can kick it off. Um, so, I mean, right, they've been going through this problem of, like, what does the death instinct do in psychoanalysis? And how does it how does it affect um, desire uh, and thereby life, right? So like Eros kind of has the both kind of bound up on that in a manner of speaking. And right, so they've gone through like especially the critique of like so we talked about the superego aspect, and then we talked about very briefly in a paragraph where they write, there is no need to tell all over how psychoanalysis culminates in a theory of culture that takes up again the old age-old task of the aesthetic idea. Nirvana, the cultural abstract, judging life, belittling life, measuring life against death, and only retaining from life what the death of death wants very much to leave us with, a sublime resignation. Uh, the reason I bring that up is, is right. I think this part does kind of speak to something in terms of the aesthetic ideal, like this idea that you can just kind of, um, like there's some way to basically extricate yourself altogether from cult, um, from culture, right? Uh, more specifically, to get out of the... There's some way that the the two regimes, the molar and molecular, can somehow be, like, fully it's excluding one each uh, one another, right? And I think this is kind of like the... one of the tricks we kind of encounter that they're suggesting, right, is that the aestheticism um, is itself something we find conditioned by the socius, right? You know, this point about the sublimation is that even that, right, this desexualization plays out there. So, right, the point that I see them trying to get on this paragraph then is to further that argument of, like, so we've kind of talked about why the death instinct is used this way, um, but why does it have to function, or why does it function um, in this transcendent way, right? What's the what's the point of that? And so, right, they write regarding Freud, since he realienated this, realienated this essence, reinvesting in a subjective system of representation of the ego, so placing desire, right, and what what's happening the first synthesis and second synthesis in terms of an ego, uh, recoded this essence on the residual territoriality of Oedipus. So, right, the functionalities and what the flows do and how they communicate in terms of the Oedipal and under the despotic signifier of castration. So, basically, like, right, the Erstat at some level, recoding in that. He could no longer conceive the essence of life except in a form turned back against itself in the form of death itself, right? So, the measuring against death in that is basically to uh, is basically to quell desire, right? To use death not as um, like we talked about uh, co-substantive with life, uh, but to basically 
I mean, basically, it's kind kind of like killing life altogether in a sense, right? And it does that in a sense by taking death out of uh, out of that substance and putting it above life, right? As though it's exclusive. So, right where they put the point about um, and this neutralization, this turn against life. Is also the last way in which a depressive and exhaustive life can go on surviving and dream that it is surviving. And they give the example of wounds actually coming with a desire to live. That's kind of the interesting thing. Like, I think there's that bit in Lacan where he talks about, like, you know, you, there's that problem of these, there still has to be some desiring happening. Otherwise, the whole thing would, um, would basically, like, do, it would be self-defeating, right? There has to be some level of it going on, which is like, I think what the sublimation is more or less getting at, right, is that in doing so, right, the psychoanalytic practice is then to put life under these conditions, to put desire under these conditions in such a way that it's always basically wounded. Um, and in that way, it's compelled to kind of keep desiring, but under this condition of, um, I mean, basically under the under the condition of putting life in terms of death altogether. Somebody's, I think, posted like the Anankate thing, and that's really it, right? The inevitability, compulsion, necessity, like the fact that no matter what, this is the inevitability um, for life and all of that is that it has to end this way. And because it has to end this way, everything happening now is under that... Um, you know, basically under that idea. I didn't have a lot of success finding answers to my question about masturbation. Just mentioning. Although I'm, I hate when that happens. I know. I know. I'm, I'm 99% sure that's how it's intended though. Like for sure. Um, which is interesting as a phrasing. Specialist artists know how to handle the death instinct. Like the phrasing is very much sexual. Uh, and the original word is very much that and bringing off means what it does. So this, this idea of, um, kind of the completing the finality, having the jouissance around castration and frustration and that the, the psychoanalyst, their job, they are the specialist artist who's able to sort of finish that, to get, to bring off castration and bring off frustration they're they're there for these things. They know how to handle this death instinct, and it's kind of a like they build the thing, and they know how to handle it to make it seem like it's good. Yeah, I mean it's pretty interesting, right? Because in that sense, as much as they're killing life, they're killing death, both at the same time through through this abstraction of death, right? I mean that's that's kind of the thing, right? Is like at some level desire does have to kind of continue but the psychoanalytic move is to put it is to force it to try and wreck it this is going to be tricky is to force it under these conditions i think right to subject the unconscious to these conditions and thereby basically setting the conditions for the experience of the unconscious yes. right in its self-production so not totally stopping it right but putting it under a very serious territoriality right i can go with that 
yeah, redirecting, it's kind of, it's sort of hard to, hard to nail down, but yeah, redirecting, it's a good direction, John Claire. All right. Uh, time for the affirmative task. Finally, we're getting there. I'm going to start pushing us that direction. <clears throat> time for the next paragraph. This one is going to take a little bit. <sighs> is this really the right way to bring on better days? And aren't all the destructions performed by schizoanalysis worth more than this psychoanalytic conservatory? Aren't they more a part of an affirmative task? Lie down then on the soft couch with the analyst, which the analyst provides, and try to think up something different. If you realize that he is not a god, but a human being like yourself, with worries, defects, ambitions, frailties, that he is not the repository of an all-encompassing wisdom, code, but a wanderer along the deterritorialized path, perhaps you will cease pouring it out like a sewer, however melodious it may sound to your ears, and rise up on your own two legs and sing with your own God-given voice, Newman. To confess, to whine, to complain, to commiserate, always demands a toll. To sing it doesn't cost you a penny, not only does it cost nothing, you actually enrich others instead of infecting them. The phantasmal world is the world which has not been fully conquered over. It is the world of the past, never of the future. To move forward, clinging to the past is like dragging a ball and chain. We are all guilty of crime, the great crime of not living life to the full. You were not born Oedipus. You caused it to grow in yourself. And you aim to get out of it through fantasy, through castration. But this in turn, you have caused to grow in Oedipus, namely in yourself. The Horrible Circle shit on your whole mortifying imaginary and symbolic theater. What does schizoanalysis ask? Nothing more than a bit of relation to the outside, a little real reality. And we claim the right to a radical laxity, a radical incompetence, the right to enter the analyst's office and say, it smells bad there. It reeks of the great death and the little ego. Uh, it's great. Shit on your whole mortifying imaginary and symbolic theater. So, uh, how you doing, Lacan? I'm Guattari. You remember me? I, I just, I just love some of this writing. Um, the the line in there uh, that they use the longer piece, the little bit of semi poetry, I fucking absolutely adore. Uh, get on your own two legs, sing with your God-given voice, confess, whine, complain, commiserate. It demands a toll to sing, costs you nothing. Fucking love that so very, very much. Um, they really hate psychoanalysis. Hey, I've summed up the paragraph. Um, it's not just psychoanalysis. It's, it's what it drives within us and the circle that they say here. You were not born Oedipalized. That's not how it operates. You caused it to grow in yourself, your actions. You've built the fascist within. You intend to get it out by embracing fantasy and castration. But this, in turn, the way that these things are built, ultimately cause Oedipus and grow within it. And therefore in yourself, which again you then have it and you aim to get out further through more fantasy and more castration. 
And then we wonder why we're all neurotic, anxious nightmares of creatures. Um, all they want is uh, two little things. It's a great, great little simple bits. Uh, a bit of relation to the outside. Not a big fan of the idea of a man sitting on a couch. Uh, the, the schizo for a stroll is a better subject than the laying on the couch. Um, a little bit of, as they say, real reality. They also claim, and I love it, a radical laxity, a radical incompetence. The right to enter the analyst's office and say it smells bad there. It reeks of the great death and the little ego. It's a fantastic uh, little couple lines. Radical incompetence. I adore that. Please, questions, comments. Um, fairly crisp passage overall. What? Mambo number five? What the fuck? I don't even get that meme, Jack. The song, a little bit of Erica and all that. Oh, terrible. Yeah, I don't know the that, words that's, to it. That's a, that's, a, that's a bad reference. That's a bad reference. It's a bad reference. You know, a little bit of reality. And... Oh, oh, it's just, that's terrible. That's now, the link uh, to the song for those of you who, like me, don't know the words either. <laughs> uh, and those of us in the 90s who know all the words, all of us old people. Um, someone's going to meme that now, Jack. Oh, God damn it. Um, I will continue to the next paragraph. More uh, fantastic critique. Um, and they start from here getting into, I think, things that strike me as uh, matching lived experience or describing things uh, for the next little bits. They start getting into, I think, more of the molar, the real world, and the setup. Hmm. <sighs> Why am I yawning? Goddamn. Freud himself indeed spoke of the link between his discovery of the death instinct in World War I, which remains the model of capitalist war. More generally, the death instinct celebrates the wedding of psychoanalysis and capitalism. Their engagement had been full of hesitation. What we have tried to show, apropos of capitalism, is how it inherited much from the transcendent death-carrying agency, the despotic signifier, but also how it brought about this agency's effusion in the full imminence of its own system. The full body, having become that of capital money, suppresses the distinction between production and anti-production. Everywhere it mixes anti-production with the productive forces in the imminent reproduction of its always widened limits, the axiomatic. The death enterprise is one of the... Oh, God. Why am I... God. I have not been sleeping. The death enterprise is one of the principal and specific forms of the absorption of surplus value in capitalism. It is this itinerary that psychoanalysis rediscovers and retraces with the death instinct. The death instinct is now only pure silence in its transcendent distinction from life, but it effuses all the more throughout all the imminent combinations it forms with this same life. Absorbed, diffuse, imminent death is the condition formed by the signifier in capitalism, the empty locus that is everywhere displaced in order to block the schizophrenic escapes and place restraints on the flights. Hey, that thing I mentioned earlier. Um, 
there's a fantastic line here that's sort of super, super, super important to kind of the entire book. And if you're going to read ATP, it's kind of uh, a little bit of a big deal. Um, The full body, having become that of capital money, this is the socius, suppresses the distinction between production and anti-production everywhere. It mixes anti-production with the productive forces in the imminent reproduction of its own widened limits. Um, This is when we get into how guilt operates and debt plays a role. It is not that debt plays a role when money means debt. It always means debt. It also always sort of means production too, kind of. I mean, you're free to explain it to me. It's fucked up because we can't tell. That's the, that's the point. Uh, the dollar that I owe, uh, I declared bankruptcy just over a year ago personally. Uh, debt is a horrifying thing to sort of have at your shoulders. And money does this. There is no positive money. It's always a debt to something and someone else. These things exist and they're always playing. And so anti-production being woven into everything we do alongside production with the widened limits of the axiomatic always going, it means ultimately, they phrase here, the death enterprise is one of the principal and specific forms of the absorption of surplus value in capitalism. It is this itinerary that psychoanalysis rediscovers and retraces with the death instinct. The death instinct is now only pure silence and a transcendent distinction from life, but effuses all the more throughout all the imminent combinations it forms within this life. The war death complex that they're talking about here is not a simple thing. Uh, They're going to be going into a lot more here, ATP, a lot more. Um, But that set of sentences is really important that you grasp and understand. So if you have questions, now would be the time to let me know. I don't have the ATP side, but one thing I've been thinking about as we've been going through this more, um, and it's interesting, is like even, I love when they do this, they kind of point out that like even Freud knows what we're talking about at some level, but, um, you know, it just it's a similar problem of the oedipalization of Freud um, complicates a lot in his work. Like the three essays on sexuality are the, the easy example of that, right? The progressive rewriting and edipalization of the original work. Not that it's necessarily the, the truth, but that, that, that it does go undergo an edipalization. Um, one thing that sticks out to me here, right, is like, in some sense, part of the way that they've been understanding death is this point about, and this is the schizophrenic death, right, is there's this point about uh, an attraction of intensities to absolute zero, I think, or, or more so to the body that organs, right? It's interesting to follow that line of thought and now see the socius embarked here, right? And so they write, um, the death enterprise is one of the principal and specific forms of the absorption of surplus value in capitalism. Is this itinerary? that psychoanalysis rediscovers and retraces with the death instinct. The death instinct is now only pure silence and its transcendent distinction from life, but it effuses all the more through all the imminent combinations it forms with the same life. So it's interesting because like this whole point about widening the limits through the imminence of the socius, right? 
it's interesting to follow that point about like if the schizophrenizing death brings these intensities in relation to an absolute zero, right? The widening of the limit sounds like it might be more of a paranoiac distinction to me. I don't have a, a great larger argument. It's something I'm trying to think through as we're reading. Basically like a repulsion of intensities, right? And in doing so, a, a widening of the, the limits of the axiom. Um, no, I think the, the the nature of the axiomatic within capital is able to continually widen because as uh, it naturally deterritorializes and reterritorializes at the edges, it doesn't recodify. Uh, it instead uh, instead of coding desire, um, the limits are effectively turned into uh, what they are via the axiomatic, uh, via the rules of the society and these different things that come in that'll enable capital to continue to function even at the furthest limits. And as such, that's the line that it ends on, which is that um, the empty locus death uh, that is everywhere displaced in order to block schizophrenic escapes and place restraints on flights. This ensures that no one goes beyond the axiomatics. Uh, it's the nature of death and uh, uh, what it plays in the, the, in the way that uh, production and anti-production are sort of subsumed under a single full body. Yeah, I'm following you. I'm thinking the the widened limits of the axiomatic, right? The limits they called out earlier in uh, this chapter were, um, I believe it's the relative limit of capitalism, the absolute limit of the BWL. So in that sense, one of the one of the suggestions I think they're getting at then is like, if the axiomatic has these widening limits, it sounds to me like you have a instead of like a, an attraction of like I was just discussing to the BWO, it sounds like the socius then would be repelling the BWO, right? By widening the limit of the, the axiomatic. I, I, what you're saying about the, the, like the, the codification a lot, right? That would be the risk for the, for the molar is that if the desire were to break through the BWO, right? The molecular deterritorialization um, would happen, and that would completely change the flow, right? Because then it would it would not undergo the recodification of the Erstat, right? It would it would end, uh, it, it would molecularize and completely, um, I mean, basically be released. Yes, I think so. Okay, distinction between think and believe. So, um, are you asking me where where in the text? Or is it because of just how I phrased a thing, which may be just me being a shithead and how I talk? If it's how I, if it's because of how I talk, it's me just being a shithead. Don't, don't overread it. Uh, I tend to talk as if uh, going on a journey with me is the whole point rather than any specific thing I say, because I don't, don't really have the confidence to say I know anything at this point. <laughs> so no sorry needed. Um, I want to do the next paragraph and we'll end there uh, because this is a great, just a great paragraph. The only modern myth is the myth of zombies, mortified schizos, good for work, brought back to reason. In this sense, the primitive and the barbarian with their ways of coding death are children in comparison to modern man and his axiomatic. So many unemployed are needed, so many deaths, 
The Algerian war doesn't kill more people than weekend automobile accidents, planned death in Bengal, etc. Modern man raves to far greater extent. His delirium is a switchboard with 13 telephones. He gives his orders to the world. He doesn't care for the ladies. He is brave, too. He is decorated like crazy. In man's game of chance, the death instinct, the silent instinct, is decidedly well-placed, perhaps next to egotism. It takes the place of zero in roulette. The house always win. So, does, so too does death. The law of large numbers works for death. It is now or never that we must take up a problem we had left hanging. Once it is said that capitalism works on the basis of decoded flows as such, how is it that it is infinitely further removed from desiring production than were the primitive or even the barbarian systems, which nonetheless code and overcode the flows? Once it is said that desiring production is itself a decoded and deterritorialized production, how do we explain that capitalism, with its axiomatic, its statistics, forms an infinitely vaster repression of this production than do the preceding regimes, which nonetheless do not lack the necessary repressive means? We have seen that the molar statistical aggregates of social production were in a variable relationship of affinity with the molecular formations of desiring production. What must be explained is that the capitalist aggregate is the least affinal. At the very moment, it decodes and deterritorializes with all its might. I uh, really love a lot of that. Um, the myth of zombies uh, as a thing. Uh, since the primitive barbarian with their ways of coding are children in comparison to modern man with his axiomatic. I think the last time I read this section, uh, the part in quotes I read with the nasally radio voice. Radios have to fire... Raves are to far greater extent. His delirium is a switchboard with 13 telephones because it's, it's meant to be like this overdone statement of uh, this world that used to be or could be or is. And it's just, it's, it's meant to be like a hyper satirization and joke. And I just love those phrasing. His delirium is a switchboard with 13 telephones. He gives his orders to the world. He doesn't care for the ladies. News, news, news on the corner. That kind of thing. It's just so well phrased. I fucking love it. I love this paragraph. The law of large numbers works for death as a thing. And that last bit, um, and then I'll, I'll open it up. Um, the, we have seen that the molar statistical aggregates of social production were in variable relationship of affinity with molecular. What must be explained is that the capitalist aggregate is the least affinal at the very moment it decodes and deterritorializes with all its might. The phrasing there is really important. Um, they've talked sort of um, at length about how the nature of the uh, phenol line and the, um, God damn it. Oh, God, the two, the grid, the axes of uh, family alliance. and alliance. Thank you, alliance and phenol. Affiliation and alliance. Yes. <laughs> um, the, the nature of the familial line as they've sort of described it early on, is that of, I, I literally create people. Like, I do, I produce people uh, as much as I produce work. I, I produce, and that production is, I create. That is the Afinal line. I trade is the uh, uh, Alliant line, essentially. It's very oversimplified. Please go back and read. It's worth, worth getting, because it's going to be important for next week. Um, but 
with all of these, the way that these things play, the line within capital is the least phenal. It's all about aligned. Because at the very moment, it decodes and deterritorializes with all its might. In that moment, it has nothing to do with creation. It's a really interesting phrasing we're going to be getting into that I really love. Because as we've talked about how desiring machines produce and then get stopped and how death is part of that process, there is another aspect to that. Because if the Athena line is effectively me creating and the sort of line of my creations... What happens when the, there isn't that? And why wouldn't there be? And maybe it's a sort of death as a thing and how it plays into that, which we'll be getting into. But I, I, not to jump ahead, I just really love the phrasing there. I, I open it up, Jack, if you want to jump in. Because this ties into a few things you were talking about. And a few things I need to revisit because... Well, I mean, that's this book. Yeah, exactly, right? When they write, we have seen that the molars... So, right, the basic question at the end of the paragraph is why is why is capital repressive at, at a greater intensity, at a greater level than the preceding soci, right? And it looks like the basic answer is because of what it does to the molecular, right? Um, and yeah, I guess they do answer that. Like the capitalist aggregate is the least of fennel at the very moment it decodes and deterritorializes with all its might. I tend to think that's it because it, the, the, that destructive aspect is so different because it comes with the, uh, the, the recodification, the reterritorialization at the molar level. It's, you know, in that sense, it, one might suggest that um, I mentioned it's like, pushing the limit of the BWO further and further away. Um, this point about the re-territorialization lot seems to be, I mean, at that level of deterritorialization, it's almost like it replaces the BWO at some level, and then the Erstat basically compensates for the rest of that distance between the, uh, the Socius and the BWL. But I, I definitely have to think through that a lot more. Well, it's a lot that's being said here. It's a lot. Um, the, there's a couple phrases in here I like as a thing. Um, they keep going back to this um, these, the wording around the aggregate, wording around statistics, wording around odds, uh, wording around um, the law of large numbers, all of these things that they keep pushing towards the idea of death. Um, and that's kind of the thing they're actually really trying to drive at, and they've been doing a lot here, that when we talk about uh, sort of how death uh, interacts with subjectivity uh, at the molar or what causes it, you were talking about not having any singular desiring machine, again, to get back to repression. You're not talking about any singular person having purely their lived experience. We're talking about telling them, here's why you're guilty, here's where it's bad. Here is death around you. Now, debt and these things, they exist only really at the level of social strata. Uh, they exist at the odds. They exist at the law of large numbers. They exist at the way things interact at that massively meta level that's necessary uh, within any social structure. And ultimately, the 
way that the primitive and barbarians had their ways of coding death that were um, quite literally, in one case, you know, carving into people or how they sort of dealt with it. it it's not even close to how absolutely stunningly um, we are able to handle it and deal with it. Um, my favorite stat on this, and it's, it was the last time we read it and I wish it wasn't the case anymore is the number of COVID deaths. Like COVID's over killing literally as many people as it was like, so whatever, like we don't even care. We don't give a shit that this is now just part of the part of doing business and, and for things to come back. Like death is just part of it. Um, these lines here are horrifying that they apply to things happening around me. I'm, so many unemployed are needed. <laughs> so many deaths. The blank war doesn't kill more people than blank accidents. It, it, holy shit. These are, this book's 50 years old. These things should not be as hilariously applicable as they are now. But they are because we're still in this fucking system. So we have this really interesting thing of why is death at the center of these things? Why, why is it that death is treated at this level and how? And this is the thing they want you to realize that death is at the center of this. The house wins, death wins, the law of large numbers works for death. Did this setup is very particular towards a specific type of subjectivity that is necessary for the capitalist means of production to continue on. And what they get to, and not to preview, because we're going to stop right now uh, after I finish this next sentence, uh, the answer is the death instinct. I'm going to read the next little bit and we'll stop. I'm not going to go through the whole paragraph. The answer is the death instinct. If we call instinct in general the conditions of life that are historically and socially determined by the relations of production and anti-production in a system. That's the point. We'll get to that next week, and I really look forward to it. Thank all of you for joining us, and we will be diving deeper into death, and then ultimately, I promise you, there is a positive task hiding somewhere in the, in the woods that we will make our way through, I promise. But we will get there, so thank all of you. <laughs>